Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Now, you are listening to Moncrief here on News Talk with Claire McKenna in for Sean this afternoon. You can text the show 53106, it'll cost you 30 cents, or you can email us afternoon at newstalk.com. And I am joined in studio now by Joanna Fortune. Hello, Joanna, how are Hi, you? Hi, Claire, how are you? Psychotherapist and specialising in child and adult psychotherapy. And you're telling me you've had the busiest year ever. It's been so busy. And, you know, in one way you think isn't that great, but actually in my business, it's usually a sign that people are really struggling. So it's all also a worrying sign when, you know, and it's certainly not just me, other therapists that I know and would work very closely and collaborate with are also saying demand is just so high at the moment. And it's something that I would see as a concern, Yeah, you know, that people are in such desperate need of mental health services and the services available are under such strain that waiting lists are huge. Yeah. And I mean, we've all been through quite a year and uh, kids in particular. Look, let's get to some yeah. of the, the texts um, and emails that came in looking for help because, you know, that's a way we can help others because a lot of them are quite common, such as this one. My five year old girl appears to have what I think are strong feelings of insecurity. When going into play school each day, she asks several times, what time are we going to collect her at? Her last question at night is, where are you going to be? Are you going outside? Are you going to the garage? She also gets very upset if during the day you go to the garage or the garden without telling her and she cannot see you immediately when she comes looking. She settled in well to play school, but it took some time. In the first year, her teacher commented that most mornings she went straight to an area at the back of the room until her friend arrived. It seems to me that she really only cares for her one friend and does not like it when other children try to engage in their game. I'm afraid that this leaves her vulnerable if they have a row and I'm concerned about the transition to primary school as her friend is going to a different school. She also wakes and comes into our room every night. She's done this for the last three years. Can you suggest how I can help her feel more secure and should I get professional help? Ah, the poor little thing. You know, there's so much in here and I suppose the question that comes up for me as you're reading that is, I wonder has she ever experienced a prolonged separation from somebody or a loss? And always think of loss in terms of a small child's viewpoint. You know, that could be that a care staff in a crash has moved away or has left and that can be a loss to a child. Maybe a grandparent passing or just not seeing people. Now, I know this is going on for longer than our pandemic period, but if you're somebody who came into this lockdown, the even the initial one, already predisposed to anxiety or worry, then that this time has been especially difficult. OK, so it may have amplified that. But I am curious, you know, has she any experience of that? And the reason being that there just seems to be a bit of a wobble in her capacity for people permanence. And that is that capacity to hold somebody in mind and feel held in their mind, even when you're not together. So that when I say goodbye to you at the school gate, I can locate you somewhere in my mind. I can see that you're at home or you're at work or what you're doing. And that allows me to feel very secure. And I know that you're coming back at the end and we will be together again. She just seems to be struggling a little bit with that. And there is an over-reliance on the one friend. Generally with young children, I don't worry so long as they have one or two friends. I do prefer two for the very reason this parent writes, because if one little friend isn't in, at least they have somebody else there. But there just seems to be something like that going on and it's leaving her a bit anxious or uncertain and she just needs to keep checking. Are you still there? Such as the waking at night and coming into your room. And I just think there's something there that you might need to do a little bit of work and attention on. I mean, I've mentioned before, 
you know, I call them like little love buttons, but you can call them just hearts on your wrist. You can draw a heart on your wrist and one on hers and touch them together at the point of separation so that she knows that if she misses you during the day, she can touch that little heart on her wrist and feel connected to you. Children really like that kind of symbolic, imaginative, magical thinking, and that can be enough often to ground them and stabilise or stuff her little pockets full of kisses so she can pull out a little kiss from you. And it's something positive, isn't it, to focus on? Because I know as a parent myself, sometimes at the school gate, if they're getting a bit clingy, it can be hard to say the right thing and not be like, get into school, you know, know. and getting yourself stressed. So at least you're like, look, here's my heart. There's your heart. And we'll rub them together, top them up. And the other thing is just maybe because she is, you know, five years old now and you might be thinking, look, yes, I've done stuff like that. Maybe she does need a more tangible transitional object when she's away from you. So that could be something like a hanky that you've put your perfume on or, you know, some maybe a piece of your scarf that you've worn a lot so it actually smells of you and it's just a small little piece of material that she could put into her bag or her pocket and take out and smell or touch when she needs to feel reconnected. Equally, putting a little photo of you and she together into, you know, in those little photo key rings that you can get. And again, that could attach to her pencil case or her school bag and she just has it there as a visual you know, something she can touch as well, reminder of you and she can then trust that where you'll be. The other thing is make sure that you do locate yourself somewhere during school hours, that you tell her where you're going to be. You don't have to give her now a breakdown of your entire schedule, but just when you're at school having fun and learning new things and playing with your friends, I will be whatever it is you're going to be doing so that she doesn't have to wonder or worry about that. She can locate you somewhere. And another thing, a final thing to think about is get a piece of just like an art and craft poster board thing and draw home and draw school draw work. They used to be different places. Maybe home and work is still the one place now. And put out a little photo or a drawing to represent each of you that you can then blue tack and move. So we're all leaving the house. You're going to be at school. You stick her little picture on the school. You stick yours at work or at home and she can again locate everyone. But once you get back into the house, everybody is re-blue tacked back at home. So we come apart and we come back together is the message that you're conveying in a very visual way. Now, all of that said, I would do all of those things because I think that it's going to to help. You could play out your respective days using little miniatures like the Doll's House characters or your Sylvanian families or whatever it is you have at home. Just play out the day so that she can see that externalised. But I also think that you could talk to school and see, well, how is she once you're not there and her friend is there? Does she settle quickly and adjust and maybe just mark the card of the school she's going into that she might need a little bit of extra support during the initial transition Mm. come September? Start going by the school, pointing it out excitedly. This is your school. This is where you're going to be and get her used to the journey. Because we do expect so much of them, don't oh, we? Yeah. I think because we bring newborns home and we don't know what to do with them. Once they begin walking <laughs> and talking, we kind of think we're done now. Cut them loose. They're, they're supposed <laughs> to understand everything, whereas they don't understand people no. leave, people come back. I'm on my own sometimes, Absolutely. but I'm not supposed to be scared. This all needs to be learned. So when you really simplify it and break it down, you think this might dissipate because the last question is, should I get professional help? And we all worry, are yeah. we making an absolute balls of it? And in years to come, will this 
five-year-old girl be an adult still talking about abandonment issues but can it be as simple as a few little It can because small small changes can make big differences with children because their lives their life experience is short you know they're either in whatever problem they're having or it has just very recently happened so we can affect change quicker than if that five-year-old was 15 or 25 that will take longer because there's more layers of defence to work through to get to the nub of the issue so she's very much in it. In terms of seeking professional help, I would increase massively all of the playfulness, all the creative stuff. I think it's no harm to proactively inquire about, because there probably will, as we said at the very beginning, be a waiting list to get a play-based therapist that maybe look at putting her name on a list if her name comes up and you no longer feel it's a problem. You could always say, no, it's actually okay and pass rather than waiting. But your other option is heap on the play for the summer and then come September, October, always around Halloween. I think a lot of children will struggle in September. It is the month of transition and change. But if the struggle is still there by Halloween midterm, then yes, I would be looking at getting some third party professional help. OK, great advice there. Um, on to the next one. My nine year old, the eldest of three, my son has demonstrated different types of ticks since he started school. His first tick was rubbing his nose to the point that it was red and looked sore at times. We discussed it and spoke about maybe putting that energy into a squeezy ball instead of hurting his nose. He then started on the back of his head and neck, an area that no one would see. I remember commenting or commending him on being so clever for coming up with that new place and again spoke to him about when he started doing it. That was maybe his way of releasing tension and now has become a habit. Reading aloud was a trigger or having to speak in front of a class. I feel the ticks begin each September. He's now in third class and the ticks are stretching out his legs and breathing in big breaths. Last year it was swallowing hard as he read aloud at home. He has come to talk it. Uh, he has come to me to talk it out. I listened and dealt with it the way I usually do. But I wonder, should I be doing more? Am I even doing the right thing? This is so interesting. And first of all, to this parent, you're doing great. Like you're doing fantastic. I love that you were commending his efforts to be more discreet or to try to better manage this himself. He's clearly trying to self-regulate. He's also coming to you and you are available and open to him bringing his worries and problems. So this is all fantastic. Sometimes, though, no matter how, what we do, so it reaches the end of what our parental repertoire can, can achieve. And then you're looking at maybe this is above and beyond and I need to go to someone else because it does seem a little bit like, you know, this, these overt symptoms is a bit like um, symptom whack-a-mole. You know, you're dealing with one and up pops another and you're mm. dealing with that and up pops another. I'm really interested in the pattern you've identified that they tend to begin each September and are activated by having to read aloud or speak in front of the class. So it does seem that school is an emotional charge. And stress. I mean, if you're yes. doing these things watching the telly, what's the difference in it being a stressful situation? How do you know one's a problem and one's just a habit? Well, ticks are an interesting one, particularly with children, because first of all, they're way more common than we think they are. And they can begin in very young. They're probably most dominant between five and ten years old. But even younger children can develop some kind of a tick. We often look at, is it something neurologically based? And you would have to get that explored and ruled out. But sometimes it's more of a compulsion. You know, it's more this repetition compulsion that I I feel compelled to keep repeating the behaviour rather than it being something neurological. And particularly that there's a pattern that seems to be behavioural to this one. I would be curious about that. I do think that he 
you know, it, the story here does seem to be there's an underpinning level of stress and anxiety for him and he is trying to deal with it. So he is a wise, clever little boy. You know, he is trying to come up with ways of managing those, let's call them uh-oh feelings or levels of discomfort that he's grappling with himself. And he is coming to his parent. I think that's really, really great. I just think, though, a referral to suitable child and adolescent mental health services that could be CAMS, um, you would have to go that route via your GP. Just even to rule out that there's nothing else that could help. Maybe even some cognitive behavioural work or some play-based therapy could be very helpful for him in addressing the underlying anxiety for this issue. Now, again, anticipate waiting lists with everything. So while I do encourage you to go down that route, if going private is also an option for you, there may still be a wait, but it will likely be a shorter wait than the public system. But please explore both. Now, at home, I really love that you were doing that squeezy ball idea because that was so smart to go, oh, you could do this instead. And you were giving him an alternative. Rather than just saying, stop that. Exactly. But you're also acknowledging you need something, mm. but I don't want you hurting your nose or hurting your neck or whatever it might be, moving it away from his own body onto something else. So something like that again could be really good. I would increase a lot of sensory play, even something because he is nine years old, like making slime is still really attractive to children at that age. Uh, Making scented Play-Doh, just make, you know, you can put some food dye, some, you know, um, essential oils or herbs or sliced lemons, anything like that and make a, a deeper sensory experience out of that and then play a bit of sculptionary with it, you know, so that you're not just making the Play-Doh but using it. Increasing his sensory play will help to take him out of that busy, agitated, overactive mind and try to pull him and anchor him down into the now moments in his body. I also think make sure our children are getting, especially now that we're finally Oh, she says on a rainy day, but coming into the summer, um, more physical, active outdoor play is also really good for them. A lot of body movements, climbing, jumping, rolling, running, all of that is really, really good as well for motor coordination, but just calming that hyperstimulated body part. Because it's very different listening to you then with kids, because with adults, we talk about stress management techniques, mindfulness, meditation. Mm -hmm. That's just too far down the track, is it, for a a young mind? I think children also need to work out some of the stress they're Mm. holding to actively process it. We forget that play is so vital for children in terms of making meaning of their experiences. And development rather than just fun. Exactly. That, oh, absolutely. I mean, fun, it is fun. It's great. It should be fun. But that's, you know, play isn't just something nice for children to do. It is essential. I would even go further and say play is essential for all of us, adults included, we need that playful mindset and to be able to creatively um, adapt and be flexible in our world now more than ever. But children will get out there and they do their communication. So having that physical, playful, fun, high adrenaline. But I don't mean he needs to be now swinging from the branches of a tree all day. You can have mild, moderate, high levels of stimulation. And I do think that. But I also think just before bed, even though it might sound counterintuitive, do some play that really elicits a good old belly laugh. Now, not tickles, because tickles are stimulating. Again, between parents and children, there's nothing wrong with tickles. Once your child is okay with it, some kids hate it and some love it. But, you know, fun. Fun that elicits laughter because a good old belly laugh is a great way to release any residual tension that we're holding on to from our day before bedtime. So I would increase all of that kind of play anyway, but in and of itself, because this is going on so long, I think 
having the added support of some professional input, even just to look over and say, look, I think this will be fine because most children do outgrow these kinds of behaviours. But just because it's there a quite a long time, I'd like it looked at. OK, really interesting. Well, Joanna, you're going to stay with us over the break. If people want to get in contact with the show, 53106, it'll cost you 30 cents. You can email afternoon at newstalk.com. Is there anything more lovely than a baby giggle like that? This is Moncrief, our news talk with Claire McKenna in for Sean this afternoon. And I'm joined in studio by psychotherapist specialising in child and adult psychotherapy, Joanna Fortune. On to our next then, uh, Joanna. My son at almost seven is still wetting himself. Wet patches, not puddles. We've had him investigated medically and all clear. His classmates are mentioning it, which upsets him. But otherwise, he doesn't seem to give a hoot and it's driving me batty. Should I let it go completely? Because I'm constantly nagging him and asking him to use the toilet and he's getting really cross with me. This is one of the hardest things, isn't it? How much do you let it go and how much do you keep on it? I always think toileting and food are the most challenging things kids can throw at us because what goes in and out of the body and those control issues around the body are very much in their control and we can't make them do something or change something they're doing for them. You know, we can't rescue him from this. He has to come in and say, yes, I recognise this is something I want to change because otherwise you're putting all these systems in place and he's getting irritated as this parent saying he's getting cross. He doesn't want to go there. He doesn't want to think about it. The only hook is that he is getting upset that his classmates are mentioning it. And at seven and moving out of seven into older age groups, he's much more conscious of what his friends are thinking of him because as children leave that early childhood stage, you know, under seven, years old and move into middle childhood, what their friends think of them, what their peers think of them is in much sharper focus than before. Now, you've done the right thing because once he's medically clear with this kind of a thing, I always prefer to rule out something medical before we decide it's something the child can change. Let's make sure it's something that is within his control. But once he's medically clear, we would then look at emotional causes. Has anything happened that's distressing? Is he experiencing a tough time in school? Anything like that that could emotionally be triggering an overt behaviour like wetting and if you're like no happy out nothing like that going on then we would also then look at behaviour issues okay let's look at it then. kids can be too busy can't they to go That's to the toilet. That's the biggest reason Claire to be honest is that frankly as a child I have better things to be doing. Mm. I'm playing I'm active I'm busy and I can be so immersed in my play and whatever task I'm doing that I'm just not listening to the body cues or when I go to the toilet I want to get in and out in 10 seconds flat because I don't want to miss anything maybe a TV show or a game so I'm not fully emptying my bladder which might be why you then get the drips and drops and the wet patches rather than puddles coming. So I do think that you want to come at this you know, gently yet firmly and say that you've noticed it seems to be hard for him to hear his body telling him when it's time to go. So until his body can do that for him, you're going to have to be that voice. So while he doesn't like you saying, hey, let's do the toilet schedule, at the same time, your body is telling you, but I think it's just too hard to hear it. When you start hearing your body, I'll stop saying it. So you're doing it in that way of an if and then and you're flagging to him. Actually, you can do this yourself, but until that's within your scope, I'm going to help you. Would you add a a reward system for when he does go to the toilet? Because sometimes we can just focus in on the negative and what they're not doing. You know, it's so 
easy to, to get stuck in that negative trap. Oh, yeah. And you do want to highlight that he can do it because once the medical has been ruled out, you know, he can do this. I mean, generally speaking, I don't go down the route of reward charts because you run the risk of teaching children something is only worth doing in exchange for mm. a prize or a present. And, you know, not always and not with all children. But when you withdraw the chart and reward, I've lost the incentive. It doesn't mean the behaviour change will stick. And it's another thing to do. It really is. And also him not wetting himself is really something that he's just got to master. Okay. You know, now, again, some children do really well with the reward chart and they're so delighted with themselves and proud of themselves. They keep going. I'd need him to care a bit more to know that that would work. Right now he's telling you, yeah, I don't care. I just I'm not interested. That's going to be the biggest challenge here, no matter what you do. What I would say, though, is tell him when he goes, he has to count to 10 slowly while he's going. And after he hits number 10, see, does he need to go again? Because I think he's not emptying his bladder. The fact that he's still dribbling afterwards. Um, And you could also, but I do think you need his buy-in for any of the behaviour to change. I do want to say that because if he doesn't like the teasing in school, then let him know, "I, I know you're upset about that. We will work together on it. I think you've got to make him a collaborator on this. If you just do it as the parent, it becomes something that matters to you and to you only. Yeah, I know. And it seems so huge and it's really important until it's not. So, look, we wish you all the best with that. And hopefully you'll be like, oh, God, yeah, he used to wet himself from time to time in a few weeks time, shall we say. (laughs) Let's be really hopeful and positive. And then this one, uh, my Mm. son will be 18 months at the end of June and he has hardly any speech. He makes plenty of sounds and he has tried to say the words no milk and cow, but only I know what he's saying. I'm sure his older brothers were both chatting by now. They are three and five At what point should I be concerned? He definitely hears everything I'm saying. I like that he hears everything and I'm assuming he also understands if you give a get this or pick that up, he can do that as well. I mean, speech is something that we do tend to go, how many words should they have at 18 months? It's just not that prescriptive. You could have an 18 month old who has anything between six and 20 words at that age. And once they kind of pass 18 months and get closer to two, you can have a surge in vocabulary development and they go from having a couple of words words to being really quite fluent and coming out with words that you don't understand where they've even heard it. But some children take longer. They have capacity to develop language doesn't mean they develop it at the same time. So just keep an eye on that. And it's very it's easy to say don't be comparing him to his siblings. That is literally your benchmark. You're going to do that anyway. But I wonder might his older brothers be interpreting or speaking for him? You know, that can happen with children who are the youngest, their older siblings kind of go, oh, you want the ball and they go get it for the without whole family them having to say it. Exactly. exactly. Why do you speak when you don't actually need to if everything you gesture exactly is handed to that. you? And I do think, though, that one of the things you want to look at is how playful you can be with language. Like children are born into a sea of sounds. Like it's a very sensuous experience developing language, how we shape words and produce them in our mouth, how words feel. I remember my own little one, you know, using words completely out of context just because she liked the way they sounded. So she would say a word just randomly randomly because, yeah, I like that word and she would say it and say it and say it and then move on to something else. So be playful with language. Use the prosody of your voice, you know, that pitch, pace, tone, the musicality. And don't forget that, you know, he is using sounds. So work with that and especially highlighting sounds that have meaning, those phonemes. So things like, uh oh, oops, you know, things like that, that children know by the tone of that sound what the meaning is. And that can be a lovely way to be playful with it. I would also be singing songs, dancing and using repetition. So if he is pointing or if he is trying to say, like you're saying, no milk or cow, you know, 
that's quite the selection of words. No Love milk it. and cow. Yeah. But if he's saying those and only you would understand, then you say the word clearly and repeat it three to five times for him. And then he will hopefully, because children learn through mirroring and repetition, pick up what you're saying and mirror how you're saying it. But do you mean in normal everyday going about your business? I mean, do you need to be sitting with cards? Oh, no, I think uh, no, no, Nothing don't is make formed. it like that. You know, make it very casual and everyday and something you're doing as opposed to a here comes the words, you know, because okay. that's just making it like a job and a chore when language is more than that. So I think you can be playful. Now, what I would say to you is that you could flag your concern at this stage to your public health nurse and ensure that he is seen for his second year developmental check because due to the pandemic, you know, a lot of those developmental checks for year two and year three children haven't been seen. And I know my own health centre wrote out to parents saying, look, if you are concerned, let us know so that you could say, look, I don't think they're speaking enough at two or three years old, then they will definitely have your child seen. But I think even though he's only he's not quite 18 months yet, just turning 18 months, that it would be no harm just to flag to your PHN that it's something you are concerned about because maybe they could give you some guidance on that. Yeah, but as you say, they all start speaking at different times. So for now, there's nothing really to worry about. Yeah. Um, Our toddler, says another, has started swivelling around during his night feed. So rather than lying in the traditional cradle position, he's now lying belly down and we end up feeding him the bottle like you would feed a calf. It feels wrong because of the position of his neck, but he keeps moving to that position. What should we do? I mean, kids do the most brilliant things, don't they? Just when you think like I've seen it all, here's the calf feeding child, you know, they have this little way of doing things. I think it's really interesting that it's his night feed. So he is taking his feeds, you know, in a less properly, quote unquote, during the day. So I'd be really interested in what others think or suggest about this as my own instinct here would be to stop the feed when he's doing that, gently reposition him and then resume the feed and keep repeating that. But if he persists with the flipping over and just playing at that time, might he be full? Could it be that he just doesn't need this feed so he's messing around with it? And it's a great way of keeping you there to keep moving him. So when you reposition him, be playful with it, okay? You're going to gently turn him over, keep your eye contact with him, sing a song while you're doing it, try to keep him engaged with you and your face. So doing things like pop cheeks or touching his nose and it beeps and his chin and it honks, doing a little bit of face play while you're doing that will hopefully keep him looking at you. And is this this okay in the night, Joanna? I was always afraid to do anything thing that might make them think it was time to not go back asleep I again. I mean, this kid's already doing his flippy rolly overs and he's thinking it's playtime already. So doing a little bit, it doesn't have to be like beep, honk. You could do it gently beep and honk in a lower whisper tone. So again, using the prosody of your voice to cue, it's quiet time versus it's Yes, and we're still in the dark. Oh yeah, absolutely. But I do think you could do that, a little bit of that or incy wincy spider. You could have the little, your hand spider climbing up his little tummy gently. Anything that's going to encourage him to stay face on with you would be my thing. But also pay attention that maybe he's letting you know, I don't want it. I don't Mm. need this feed. Okay, interesting. I have three kids as another, aged eight, five and two. Being a proactive or protective, I should say, parent is an aid to me. But I'm wondering, am I crossing the line into being a hypochondriac about my kids? A friend once told me that she had learned baby CPR after an incident. And as my little ones are still quite young, I find myself panicking that something like that will happen to them. So especially with the older ones, I carefully control what they do, who they see, where I bring them, etc. My family says I'm too overpowering with them, but I just want to keep them safe. 
Am I overreacting? Should I worry less and let them be kids? I mean, that's parenting, isn't it? The minute the baby comes out, all of a sudden plug sockets are potential death traps. You just see the world differently. Yeah, you're you're dead right. And I think what's interesting here is that this parent feels I'm being protective. I want to keep them safe. Other people are telling you you're a hypochondriac, you're overreacting, you're overbearing, you're overwhelming. And you don't want anxious kids. And that is the key here. So, I mean, there's a big leap between being a protective parent and being a hypochondriac about your kids. They are not the same. Okay, and the whole thing about, you know, someone told me about CPR and I should do it. To be honest with you, we should all know. CPR when we have kids because you just have to be prepared. So again, I wouldn't look at that and go, well, that's pathological and why would you be over the top? When you take break this down step by step, you're going, that's not such a big deal. It's the cumulative piece about, you know, with my older kids as well, I carefully control what they do, who they see. And for me, I just wonder, where does this anxiety come from? Okay, because did something happen or is this something in you that you fear I'm not enough? I won't be able to keep them safe. I want something terrible is going to happen, you know, and I think you have to ask yourself and answer. I think as parents, we're great for asking ourselves questions, but we don't always remember to answer the questions we're asking ourselves. Always ask yourself, okay, what I fear on the balance of probability, not possibility, probability. What's the worst thing that could happen? Okay, and challenge that fatalistic thinking you've got and say, okay, what is the worst thing that could happen if they climb a tree or if they do whatever it is they go or if they go to see whoever it is I don't want them to see? Just ask and answer that question to try and anchor yourself in the moment. But I do think there is something you have to hold in mind as a parent that there's huge importance emotionally, developmentally in supporting our children's exploration independently of us, encouraging them to take appropriate like developmentally appropriate, I mean, but healthy risk taking behaviour. And that is about taking chances and allowing our children to take chances. And when I say support their exploration, that means that we avoid being that helicopter hovering over them. And we say, hey, you got this. Go out there, do it. Look at you climbing. Look at you running. And if they fall over or moreover, when they fall over, we can do our little oops. How are you? Are you okay? Let them off again and do it. But that means that if you're an anxious parent like this, you may for a while need to sit on your hands and just really kind of bite your tongue and just let that happen. Because supporting their exploration is half of it. Welcoming them back when things go wrong and they get upset and dysregulated and tired and cranky and whiny and being able to welcome them in with kisses and cuddles and reorganize them is the other part of that. But if you never let them go off and do something and explore, then they don't get to come into you and and then they don't have the resilience. And I mean, no one is suggesting dangling your kids over the side of a building or anything, but I think we've all been there. That'd be the other type of risk taking behavior. Yeah, (laughs) like in a playground, not letting them just go up the ladder by themselves on a slide that's actually yeah. designed for children. Yeah. You know, it's hard, but you just have to it's let hard, them do but it. But I also think if you're finding that excessively hard, then what I would say is you need to look a little bit inwards and say, what is getting activated in me by these typical child behaviours? And that is something that parent might benefit from some sessions for themselves with somebody who can do some psychoeducation, some Uh, you know, therapeutic parenting work or adult psychotherapy just to look at what is getting triggered that, uh uh-oh, that alarm system that's going off, that fatalistic thinking of something terrible will happen if they do what are basic child things. So a lot of empathy here for this parent because I really think that is such a hard place to be. But don't forget that the best thing you can do for your children is take care of yourself. And that might mean that you take some sessions. Brilliant advice. I just want to finish up with some text that we got in. 
my son had slower speech development and we discovered he had a tongue tie, which mm. he got fixed 10 years later. He still won't shut up. That's from <laughs> Kev. Um, my second child at 18 months would just grunt and his older brother seemed to know what he wanted. Hence, he didn't make any yeah. great attempt to talk. But at two years, he developed verbal diarrhoea and at 37 is as verbose as they come. So that should give that parent a little bit of confidence that everything Absolutely. should be OK. Brilliant advice as ever. Joanna Fortune, thank you very, very thank much you. for coming in. Coming up after the break, we will be looking at the curious history of sex. Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.